0: Musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo, I'm the host here in the Psychedelic Salon and today's podcast, in my opinion, features the most important lecture that I've ever posted. Now, I know that there are a lot of young people who would listen to these podcasts, and to my mind, that makes you quite exceptional because, well, these talks are really not the kind of thing that the average young person listens to. And I'm mentioning this because it is my fervent hope that There are uh, quite a few young people out here in the salon who will truly grok the talk that we're about to listen to and that uh, you people will be among those whose ideas uh, may ultimately save the ability for us humans to have any private thoughts whatsoever. So have I got your attention? My point is that had I heard this talk when I was still in high school, my life would have been significantly different. Uh, Of course, there was no internet then, so uh, (laughs) it couldn't have done it, right? But even now that I'm in my 70th year, this talk has already caused me to start out on yet another new path, for as William James once said, one can change their life simply by changing their attitude. So uh, what is it, can you imagine, that has so captivated my attention? Well, it's a talk that was just given two weeks ago by a man whose career I've been following ever since the uproar in the mid-90s over the strong encryption program called PGP, or uh, Pretty Good Privacy. At that time, the uh, U.S. government tried to prohibit a brilliant young computer programmer from releasing an encryption program that was as good or better than anything that the government itself had access to. And it was Evan Moglin, the man we are about to hear, who was one of the lawyers who came to the defense of this programmer and ultimately succeeded in seeing that his encryption software made it into the public domain. But Evan Moglin isn't your average civil rights lawyer. In fact, he began his professional life as a designer of computer programming languages. He then acquired several degrees including a master's and a PhD in history along with his Juris Doctorate or law degree. And at the present time, in addition to his extensive work in keeping the Internet free of government control, he is a professor of law at Columbia University. It was on May 22nd of this year that Dr. Moglin gave the keynote speech at the Freedom to Connect conference, which was held in Washington, D.C., And while that was a somewhat expensive conference, both to produce and to attend, in the interest of keeping information freely available, the conference producers published his talk on YouTube immediately after it was given. And they also posted a link to an audio-only version, which was the source for this podcast. And uh, besides the conference producers, I want to thank uh, John S., my wife, and about a half a dozen other fellow Saloners for bringing this to my attention. Now, just so that you know, the Freedom to Connect conferences are devoted to preserving and celebrating the essential properties of the Internet. Freedom to Connect, or F2C, is designed to advocate for innovation, for creativity, for expression and for little-d democracy. The essence of this organization is that it is about building an Internet that supports human freedoms and personal security. And it is also about having access to the Internet as infrastructure. As they say on their website, infrastructures belong to and enrich the whole society in which they exist. They gain value uh, in a wide variety of ways, uh, some of which are difficult to anticipate, But they they gain value when more members of society have access to them. And F2C especially honors those who build communications infrastructure for the Internet in their own communities, often overcoming resistance from incumbent cable and telephone companies in order to do so. Uh, The way I see it, basically, this is an assembly of some very powerful and influential geeks, lawyers and activists. Now, at the beginning of this talk, you may wonder what got into me to play this lecture here in the salon. But trust me, this talk not only picks up on the topic of the ongoing development of the Internet that I touched in my March 2001 talk at the Inside Edge, and which I played for you last week, it also encompasses an extremely well-reasoned example of psychedelic thinking. And it is a call to arms for the worldwide Occupy movement. In short, I think that this is perhaps the most important talk that I've ever played here in the Salon. And the way I see it, it doesn't really matter if you're a geek, a lawyer, an artist, or someone with little technical fluency. There's uh, more than one important message in this talk for you, no matter who you are. In short, it... uh, deals with the very immediate future of the evolution of human consciousness and the dire straits that lie ahead if each of us doesn't do whatever we can right now to encourage others to listen to this message as well and then act on it. Granted, uh, this is an uber geek turned lawyer speaking before some of the top internet developers and policy makers in the country, but he's also speaking directly to you. And I I just don't know how else to encourage you to listen to this extremely important lecture. So uh, hang in there in the beginning in the foundational elements that Dr. Moglin lays out uh, in the beginning of his talk. And if you have to, uh, just gloss over any technical jargon that you can't easily follow. But prepare yourself for some extremely important and very challenging information. And uh, as I often do, I haven't included all of the uh, somewhat lengthy questions that were asked after the main lecture, but I did try to include most of his replies. So uh, now let's listen to this interesting and important talk by Dr. Eben Moglin.
1: I'm going to talk uh, mostly about... Um a uh, subject almost as geeky as the stuff we all talk about over all the time, namely political economy. Uh, I'm going to try and make it uh, less uh, snoozeworthy than uh, it sometimes seems to be. Uh, but you'll forgive me, I'm sure, uh, for starting uh, fairly far uh, from OpenSSL. We'll get closer as time goes by. Um. The developed economies around the world, all of them now, are beginning to experience uh, a fundamentally similar and very depressing uh, condition. Uh, They are required to impose austerity uh, because levels of private debt uh, have gummed up the works Uh, And the determination of the owners of capital to take vast risks with other people's money have worked out extremely badly. Uh, for the last half decade. Um, And so austerity is the inevitable and politically damaging position for all the governments of the developed world, Uh, and some of those governments have begun to slip into a death spiral in which uh, the need to impose austerity and reduce public investment and welfare support for the young uh, is harming economic growth, which prevents uh, the austerity from having its desirable consequences uh, instead of bad asset values being worked off and growth resuming, uh, we are watching as uh, the third largest economy in the world, the European Union, uh, finds itself at the very verge uh, of a currency collapse uh, and a lost generation uh, which would have a profoundly depressing uh, effects on the entire global economy. Uh, for the policymakers, I recognize that few of them are here. They have, of course, better things to do than listen to us. Uh, for the policymakers, in other words, uh, an overwhelming problem is now at hand. How do we have innovation and economic growth under austerity? They do not know the answer to this question and it is becoming so urgent that it is beginning to deteriorate their political control. Marginal parties in several very highly developed and thoughtful societies are beginning to attract substantial numbers of votes, Uh, and threatening the very stability of the economic planner's capacity uh, to solve or uh, to attempt to solve the problem of innovation under austerity. This is not good news for anybody. This is not good news for anybody. We have no opportunity to cheer for this outcome, which is largely the result of incompetence in those people who claim to be worth all that money because they're so smart. Uh, It is partly the result of the political cowardice which gave them too much room to swing their cats. Uh, It is not that we are glad to see this happen. But there is a silver lining to the cloud. There are very few people in the world who know how to have innovation under austerity. We are they. We have produced innovation under austerity for the last generation and not only did we produce pretty good innovation, we produced innovation that all the other smart rich people took most of the credit for. Most of the growth that occurred during this wild and wacky period in which they took other people's money and went to the racetrack with it was innovation we produced for them. So now... Despite the really bad circumstances, which we too can deplore because the unemployment is my graduating law students, your children, and all those other young people whose lives are being harmed for good by current bad economic circumstances, the people beginning their careers now will suffer substantial wage losses throughout their lifetimes. Their children will get a less good start in life because of what is happening now. We cannot be pleased about this, but we have a very substantial political opportunity because we do have the answer to the most important question pushing all the policymakers in the developed world right now. That means we have something very important to say and I came here this morning primarily to begin the discussion about precisely how we should say it. And I want to present a working first draft of our argument, I say our because I look around the room and I see it's us here this morning, our argument about what to do with the quandary the world is in. Innovation under austerity is not produced by collecting lots of money and paying it to innovation intermediaries. One of the most important aspects of 21st century political economy is that the process we call disintermediation, when we're being jargony about it, is ruthless consistent and relentless. Television is melting. I don't need to tell you that, you know already. Nobody will ever try to create a commercial encyclopedia again. Amazon's lousy little I will let you read some books unless I decide to take them back machine is transforming publishing by eliminating the selective power of the book publishers, much as Mr. Jobs almost destroyed the entire global music industry under the pretense of saving it, a task his ghost is already performing for the magazine publishers, as you can see. Disintermediation, the movement of power out of the middle of the net, is a crucial fact about 21st century political economy. It proves itself all the time. Somebody's going to win a Nobel Prize in economics for describing, in formal terms, the nature of disintermediation. The intermediaries who did well during the past ten years are limited to two sets health insurers in the United States, owing to political pathology, and the financial industry. Health insurers in the United States may be able to capitalize on continuing political pathology to remain failing and expensive intermediaries for a while longer, but the financial industry crapped in its own nest and is shrinking now and will continue for some time to do so. The consequence of which is that throughout the economic system as the policymaker observes it, the reality that disintermediation happens and you can't stop it becomes a guiding light in the formation of national industrial policy. So we need to say it's true about innovation also. The greatest technological innovation of the late 20th century is the thing we now call the World Wide Web, an invention less than 8,000 days old. That invention is already transforming human society more rapidly than anything since the adoption of writing. We will see more of it. The nature of that process, that innovation, both fuels disintermediation by allowing all sorts of human contacts to occur without intermediaries, buyers, sellers, agents and controllers, and poses a platform in which a war over the depth and power of social control goes on. A subject I'll come back to in a few minutes. For now, what I want to call attention to is the crucial fact that the World Wide Web is itself a result of disintermediated innovation. What Tim first did at CERN was not the web as we know it now. The web as we know it now was made by the disintermediated innovation of an enormous number of individual people. I look back on what I wrote about the future of personal home pages in 1995, and I see pretty much what I thought then would happen happening. I said then, those few personal home pages are grass seed, and a prairie's going to grow, and so it did. Of course, like all other innovation, there were unintended consequences. The browser made the web very easy to read. Though we built Apache, though we built the browser, though we built enormous numbers of things on top of Apache and the browsers, we did not make the web easy to write. So a little thug in a hooded sweatshirt made the web easy to write, and created a man-in-the-middle attack on human civilization, (laughs) which is unrolling now to an enormous music of social harm. But that's the intermediary innovation that we should be concerned about. We made everything possible, including, regrettably, PHP, And then intermediaries for innovation turned it into the horror that is Facebook. This will not turn out, as we can already see from the stock market results, to be a particularly favorable form of social innovation. It's going to enrich a few people. The government of Abu Dhabi, a Russian thug with a billion dollars already, a guy who can't wait to change his citizenship so he doesn't have to pay taxes to support the public schools, and a few other relics of 20th century misbehavior. But the reality of the story underneath is, if we'd had a little bit more disintermediated innovation, if we had make running your own web server very easy, If we had explained to people from the very beginning how important the logs are and why you shouldn't let other people keep them for you, we would be in a rather different state right now. The next Facebook should never happen. It's intermediated innovation serving the needs of financiers, not serving the needs of people which is not to say that social networking shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen with a man-in-the-middle attack built into it. Everybody in this room knows that. The question is how do we teach everybody else? But as important as I consider everybody else to be, right now I want to talk about the policymakers. How do we explain to them? And here we begin to divide the conversation into two important parts. One, what do we know about how to achieve innovation under austerity? Two, what prevents governments from agreeing with us about that? So let me present first my first draft of the positive case for innovation under austerity. It's called We Made the Cloud everybody understands this in this room too. the very point about what's happening to information technology in the world right now has to do with scaling up our late 20th century work. We created the idea that we could share operating systems and all the rest of the commoditizable stack on top of them. We did this using the curiosity of young people. That was the fuel, not venture capital. We had been at it for 15 years, and our stuff was already running everywhere before venture capital or even industrial capital raised by IT giants came towards us. It came towards us not because innovation needed to happen but because innovation had already happened and they needed to monetize it. That was an extremely positive outcome. I have nothing bad to say about that. But the nature of that outcome, indeed the history as we lived it and as others can now study it, will show how innovation under austerity occurred. It's all very well to say that it happened because we harnessed the curiosity of young people. That's historically correct, but there's more than that to say. What we need to say is that that curiosity of young people could be harnessed because all of the computing devices in ordinary day-to-day use were hackable. And so young people could actually hack on what everybody used. That made it possible for innovation to occur where it can occur without friction, which is at the bottom of the pyramid of capital. This is happening now, elsewhere in the world, as it happened in the United States in the 1980s. Hundreds of thousands of young people around the world hacking on laptops. Hacking on servers hacking on general-purpose hardware available to allow them to scratch their individual itches – technical, social, career, and just plain ludic itches. I want to do this, it would be neat. Which is the primary source of the innovation which drove all of the world's great economic expansion In the last 10 years. All of it. Trillions of dollars of electronic commerce. Those of you old enough to remember when fighting public key encryption tooth and nail was the United States government's policy will remember how hard they fought to prohibit 3.8 trillion dollars worth of electronic commerce from coming into existence in the world. We were Proponents of nuclear terrorism and pedophilia in the early 1990s and all the money that they earned in campaign donations and private equity profits and all the rest of it is owing to the globalization of commerce we made possible with the technology they wanted to send our clients to jail for making. That demonstrates neatly, I think, to the next generation of policymakers how thoroughly their adherence to the received wisdom is likely to contribute to the death spiral they now fear they're going to get into. And it should embolden us to point out once again that the way innovation really happens is that you provide young people with opportunities to create on an infrastructure which allows them to hack the real world and share the results. When Richard Stallman wrote the call for the university enso- for the Universal Encyclopedia, when he and Jimmy Wales and I were all much younger than we are now, it was a frivolous idea. It has now transformed the life of every literate person in the world. And it will continue to do so. The nature of the innovation established by Creative Commons, by the free software movement, by free culture, which is reflected in the web, in the Wikipedia, in all the free software operating systems now running everything, even the insides of all those locked-down vampiric Apple things I see around the room. All of that innovation comes from the simple process of letting the kids play and getting out of the way. Which, as you are aware, we are working as hard as we can to prevent now completely. Increasingly, all around the world, The actual computing artifacts of daily life for human individual beings are being made so you can't hack them. The computer science laboratory in every 12-year-old's pocket is being locked down. When we went through the anti-lockdown phase of the GPL3 negotiations in the middle of last decade, It was somehow believed that the primary purpose for which Mr. Stallman and I were engaged in pressing everybody against lockdown had something to do with bootlegging movies. And we kept saying, this is not the Free Movie Foundation. We don't care about that. We care about protecting people's right to hack what they own. And the reason we care about it is that if you prevent people from hacking on what they own themselves, you will destroy the engine of innovation from which everybody is profiting. That's still true. And it is more important now precisely because very few people thought we were right then and didn't exert themselves to support that point of view. And now you have Microsoft saying we won't allow third-party browsers on ARM-based Windows RT devices. And you have the ghost of Mr. Jobs trying to figure out how to prevent even a free tool chain from existing in relation to iOS. And you have a world in which increasingly the goal of the network operators is to attach every young human being to a proprietary network platform with closed terminal equipment that she can't learn from, can't study, can't understand, can't wet her teeth on, can't do anything with except send text messages that cost a million times more than they ought to. And most of the so-called innovation in the world in our sector now goes into helping IT for network operators that improves no technology for users. Telecom's innovation in the world has basically ceased. And it will not revive so long as it is impossible to harness the forms of innovation that really work under austerity. This has a second-order consequence of enormous importance. Innovation under austerity occurs in the first order because the curiosity of young people is harnessed to the improvement of the actual circumstances of daily life. The second-order consequence is populations become more educated. This intermediation is beginning to come to higher education in the United States, which means it is beginning to come to higher education around the world. We currently have two models. Coursera is essentially the Googleization of higher education, spun off from Stanford as a for-profit entity, using closed software and proprietary educational resources. MITx which has now become edX through the formation of a coalition with Harvard University is essentially the free world answer. Similar online scalable curriculum for higher education delivered over free software using free educational resources. We have an enormous stake in the outcome of that competition. And it behooves all of us to put as much of our energy as we can behind the solutions which depend upon free courseware everybody can use, modify, and redistribute, and educational materials based on the same political economy. Every society currently trying to reclaim innovation for the purpose of restarting economic growth under conditions of austerity needs more education deliverable more widely at lower cost which shapes young minds more effectively to create new value in their societies. This will not be accomplished without precisely the forms of social learning we pioneered. We said from the beginning that free software is the world's most advanced technical education system. It allows anybody, anywhere on earth, to get to the state of the art in anything computers can be made to do by reading what is fully available and by experimenting with it and sharing the consequences freely. True computer science. Experimentation, hypothesis formation, more experimentation, more knowledge for the human race. We needed to expand that into other areas of culture, and great heroes like Jimmy Wells and Larry Lessig laid out infrastructure for that to occur. We now need to get governments to understand how to push it further. The Information Society Directorate of the European Commission issued a report 18 months ago in which they said that they could scan one-sixth of all the books in European libraries for the cost of 100 kilometers of roadway. That meant, and it is still true, that for the cost of 600 kilometers of road in an economy which builds thousands of kilometers of roadway every year, every book in all European libraries could be available to the entire human race. It should be done. Remember that most of those books are in the public domain before you shout copyright at me. Remember that the bulk of what constitutes human learning was not made recently before you shout copyright at me. We should move to a world in which all knowledge previously available before this lifetime is universally available. If we don't, we will stunt the innovation which permits further growth. That's a social requirement. The copyright bargain is not immutable. It is merely convenient. We do not have to commit suicide culturally or intellectually in order to maintain a bargain which does not even relevantly apply to almost all of important human knowledge in most fields. Plato is not owned by anybody. So here we are asking ourselves what the educational systems of the 21st century will be like and how they will socially distribute knowledge across the human race. I have a question for you. How many of the Einsteins who ever lived were allowed to learn physics? A couple. How many of the Shakespeare's who ever lived lived and died without learning to read and write? Almost all of them. We have 7 billion people in the world right now. 3 billion of them are children. How many Einsteins do you want to throw away today? The universalization of access to knowledge is the single most important force available for increasing innovation and human welfare on the planet. Nobody should be afraid to advocate for it because somebody might shout copyright. So we are now looking at the second-order consequence of an understanding of how to conduct innovation under austerity. Expand access to the materials that create the ability to learn. Adapt technology to permit the scientists below age 20 to conduct their experiments and share their results permit the continuing growth of the information technology universe we created by sharing over the last quarter century, and we begin to experience something like the higher rates of innovation available despite massive decreases in social investment occurring because of austerity. We also afford young people an opportunity to take their economic and professional destinies more into their own hands. An absolute requirement if we are to have social and political stability in the next generation. Nobody should be fooled about the prospects for social growth in societies where 50% of the people under 30 are unemployed. This is not going to be resolved by giving them assembly line car building jobs. Everybody sees that. Governments are collectively throwing up their hands about what to do about the situation. Hence, the rapidity with which in systems of proportional representation young people are giving up on established political parties. When the pirates can take 8.3% of the vote in Schleswig-Holstein, it is already clear that young people realize that established political policymaking is not going to be directed at their future economic welfare. And we need to listen democratically to the large number of young people around the world who insist that Internet freedom and an end to snooping and control is necessary to their welfare and ability to create and live. Disintermediation means there will be more service providers throughout the economy with whom we are directly in touch. That means more jobs outside hierarchies and fewer jobs inside hierarchies. Young people around the world, whether they are my law students about to get a law license or computer engineers about to begin their practices or artists or musicians or photographers need more freedom in the net and more tools with which to create innovative service delivery platforms for themselves a challenge to which their elders would not have risen successfully in 1955. But we are a new generation of human beings working under new circumstances, and those rules have changed. They know the rules have changed. The indignados in every square in Spain know the rules have changed. It's their governments that don't know. Which brings us, I will admit, back to this question of anonymity or rather, personal autonomy. One of the really problematic elements in teaching young people, at least the young people I teach, about privacy is that we use the word privacy to mean several quite distinct things. Privacy means secrecy sometimes. That is to say, the content of a message is obscure to all but its maker and intended recipient. Privacy means anonymity sometimes. That means messages are not obscure, but the points generating and receiving those messages are obscure. And there is a third aspect of privacy, which in my classroom I call autonomy. It is the opportunity to live a life in which the decisions that you make are unaffected by others' access to secret or anonymous communications. There is a reason that cities have always been engines of economic growth. It isn't because bankers live there. Bankers live there because cities are engines of economic growth. The reason cities have been engines of economic growth since Sumer is that young people move to them to make new ways of being, taking advantage of the fact that the city is where you escape the surveillance of the village and the social control of the farm. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris was a fair question in 1919 and it had a lot to do with the way the 20th century worked in the United States. The city is the historical system for the production of anonymity and the ability to experiment autonomously in ways of living. We are closing it. Some years ago, To wit, at the beginning of 1995, we were having a debate at the Harvard Law School about public key encryption, two on two. On one side, Jamie Gorelick, then the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, and Stuart Baker, then as now, at Steptoe and Johnson, when he isn't in the United States government making horrendous social policy. On the other side, Danny Weitzner, now in the White House, and me. And we spent the afternoon talking back and forth about whether we should have to escrow our keys with the United States government, whether the clipper chip was going to work, and many other very interesting subjects now as obsolete as Babylonia. And after it was all over, we walked across the Harvard campus for dinner at the Harvard Faculty Club, and on the way across the campus, Jamie Gorelick said to me, Eben... On the basis of nothing more than your public statements this afternoon, I have enough to order the interception of your telephone conversations. In 1995, that was a joke. It was a joke in bad taste when told to a citizen by an official of the United States Justice Department, but it was a joke and we all laughed because everybody knew you couldn't do that. So we ate our dinner. And the table got cleared and all the plates went away and the port and walnuts got scattered around. And Stuart Baker looked up and he said, all right, well, we'll let our hair down. He had none then, he has none now. But we'll let our hair down, Stuart said. We're not going to prosecute your client, Mr. Zimmerman. We've spent decades in a holding action against public key encryption. It's worked pretty well, but it's almost over now. We're going to let it happen. And then he looked around the table and he said... But nobody here cares about anonymity, do they? And a cold chill went up my spine. And I thought, okay, Stuart, I understand how it is. You're going to let there be public encryption because the bankers are going to need it. And you're going to spend the next 20 years trying to stop people from being anonymous ever again. And I'm going to spend those 20 years trying to stop you. So far, I must say from my friend Mr. Baker, he has been doing better than I had hoped and I have been doing even worse than I had feared. Partly because of the thug in a hoodie, and partly for other reasons. We are on the verge of the elimination of the human right to be alone. We are on the verge of the elimination of the human right to do your own thinking, in your own place, in your own way, without anybody knowing. Somebody in this room just proved a couple of minutes ago that if he shops at a particular web store using one browser, he gets a different price than on the other, because one of the browsers is linked to his browsing history. Prices, offers, commodities, opportunities are now being based upon the data mining of everything. Senior government official in this government said to me after the United States changed its rules about how long they keep information on everybody about whom nothing is suspected. You all do know about that, right? Rainy Wednesday on the 21st of March, long after biz close of business, Department of Justice and the DNI, that's the Director of National Intelligence, put out a joint press release announcing minor changes in the Ashcroft rules. Including a minor change that says that all personally identifiable information in government databases at the National Center for Counterterrorism that are based around people of whom nothing, nothing is suspected, will no longer be retained as under the Ashcroft rules for a maximum of 180 days. The maximum has now been changed to five years, which is infinity. In fact, I told my students in my classroom the only reason they said five years was they couldn't get the sideways aid into the font for the press release. So they used an approximation, right? So I was talking to a senior official of this government about that outcome, and he said, well, you know, we've come to realize that we need a robust social graph of the United States. That's how we're going to connect new information to old information. I said, let's just talk about the constitutional implications of this for a moment. You're talking about taking us from the society we have always known, which we quaintly referred to as a free society, to a society in which the United States government keeps a list of everybody every American knows. So if you're going to take us from being what we used to call a free society to a society in which The U.S. government keeps a list of everybody, every American knows what should be the constitutional procedure for doing this. Should we have, for example, a law? He just laughed. Because, of course, they didn't need a law. They did it with a press release on a rainy Wednesday night after everybody went home. And you live there now. Whether it is possible to have innovation under conditions of complete despotism is an interesting question. Right-wing Americans, or maybe even center-right Americans, have long insisted that one of the problems with 20th century totalitarianism, from which they legitimately distinguished themselves, was that it eliminated the possibility of what they called free markets and innovation. We're about to test whether they were right. The network as it stands now is an extraordinary platform for enhanced social control. Very rapidly and with no apparent remorse the two largest governments on earth that of the United States of America and the People's Republic of China have adopted essentially identical points of view. A robust social graph connecting government to everybody and the exhaustive data mining of society is both governments' fundamental policy with respect to their different forms of what they both refer to or think of as stability maintenance. It is true, of course, that they have different theories of how to maintain stability for whom and why. But the technology of stability maintenance is becoming essentially identical. We need, we who understand what is happening, need to be very vocal about that. But it isn't just our civil liberties that are at stake. I shouldn't need to say that. That should be enough. But of course it isn't. We need to make clear that the other part of what that costs us is the very vitality and vibrancy of invention, culture and discourse, that wide-open, robust and uninhibited public debate that the Supreme Court so loved in New York Times against Sullivan, and that freedom to tinker, to invent, to be different, to be nonconformist, for which people have always moved to the cities that gave them anonymity and a chance to experiment with who they are and what they can do. This, more than anything else, is what sustains social vitality and economic growth in the 21st century. Of course, we need anonymity for other reasons. Of course, we are pursuing something that might be appropriately described as protection for the integrity of the human soul. But that's not government's concern. It is precisely the glory of the way we understand civil society that that is not government's concern. It is precisely our commitment to the idea of the individual's development at her own pace and in her own way that has been the centerpiece of what we understood to be our society's fundamental commitment that means that the protection for the integrity of the human soul is our business, not the government's business. But government must attend to the material welfare of its citizens, and it must attend to the long-run good of the society they manage. And we must be clear to government that there is no tension between the maintenance of civil liberty in the form of the right to be let alone. There is no distinction between the civil liberty policy of assuring the right to be let alone and the economic policy of securing innovation under austerity. They require the same thing. We need free software, we need free hardware we can hack on, we need free spectrum we can use to communicate with one another without let or hindrance. We need to be able to educate and provide access to educational material to everyone on earth without regard to the ability to pay. We need to provide a pathway to an independent economic and intellectual life for every young person. The technology we need, we have. I have spent some time, and many people in this room, including Isaac, have spent more time now trying to make use of cheap power-efficient, compact server computers the size of AC chargers for mobile phones, which, with the right software, we can use to populate the net with robots that respect privacy instead of the robots that disrespect privacy, which we now carry in almost every pocket. We need to retrofit the first law of robotics into this society, within the next few minutes, or we're cooked. We can do that. That's civil innovation. We can help to continue the long lifetime of general-purpose computers everybody can hack on by using them, by needing them, by spreading them around. We can use our own force as consumers and technologists to deprecate closed networks, and locked-down objects. But without clear guidance in public policy, we will remain a tiny minority, 8.3%, let's say, which will not be sufficient to lift us out of the slough into which the bankers have driven us. Innovation under austerity is our battle cry. Not a battle cry for the things we most care about, but for the ones the other people most care about. Our entree to social policy for the next five years, and our last chance to do in government what we have not been able to do by attempting to preserve our mere liberties, which have been shamefully abused by our friends in government, as well as by our adversaries. We have been taken to the cleaners with respect to our rights, and we have been taken to the cleaners with respect to everybody's money. I wish that I could say that the easiest thing to do was going to be to get our freedoms back. It isn't. Nobody will run in the election this year on the basis of the restoration of our civil liberties. But they will all talk about austerity and growth, and we must bring our message where they are. That's my first draft, inadequate in every way, but at least a place to start. And if we have no place to start, we will lose, and our loss will be long, and the night will be very dark.
2: I'd like to begin this because I hope I speak for a lot of the people here, that that was not just one of the best speeches I've ever heard, it's one of the most important. And it won't be unless we follow up on it, we act on it. I I felt, and actually uh, Elliot sitting next to me says he felt like uh, this is an I have a dream speech, and I think that's what it is. But I think Eben ended with the nightmare and if you weren't moved by this speech, your frog is boiled. Mm-hmm. And I think our frogs have been boiling for a long time. I, 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 along with everybody else, we acquiesce to prevailing conditions, whatever those happen to be. And they have gradually worsened over time and in ways that we don't fully understand and our lives are busy, and so we go about what we have to do. So what I want to do is, is task this audience with participating with the free everything movement that evan has laid out for us now so i i see this just as a q and a session but as all of us freely contributing to the framework that evan has laid out and that we've been part of for a long time i love the way he included us in this this is we've there's natural selection here we've this is a a select group uh, david has done an amazing job of pulling the right people together. The name of this event begins with freedom, and I think that needs to be our end as well. So, and I have nothing, I mean, more to add. It's just
3: fabulous talk. Evan, I'd like to ask you a question. I see a tension between freedom and convenience, And, and I wonder how you see that tension playing out I I think you urged us to focus on innovation, but I wonder if, if and I think that that does, that's compelling to this audience, perhaps the policymakers, but to the average user, convenience is, is, is an issue.
1: Yeah, it's true, um, which is not only about the relationship between technology and society, it's true about lots of other things as well. Um, uh, uh, the constitutional theorist Bruce Ackerman uh, wrote a, a lengthy multi-volume history of the Constitution in the United States on the basic premise that most of the time, most people don't want to engage in deep thinking about politics politics and society. It only happens very occasionally, and the founders of the American Republic, Bruce said, tried in the federalist structure to take advantage of those occasional moments when people want to pay attention. But here again, and and, and I I focus on this Because the demographics are so important, that sense of convenience being more important than other values, moment by moment, is more true of grown-ups than it is of children. I go around the world, I talk to governments about all sorts of things connected with technology in 21st century society, and I hear from people, from presidents to ministers to local planning committees, all sorts of stories about the terrible social problems their cultures and communities face. And I find myself saying often, yes, you're right, this is a really, really horrible problem. It's extraordinarily difficult and it requires immense amounts of energy to deal with. You need the strongest social force possible to deal with this and the strongest social force ever available anywhere is the curiosity of children. You need to harness it. We have actually both lessons, the thing you call attention, right? It's attention indeed. Because it is true that grown-ups in their busy lives find themselves willing to do anything that works and if you hand them a box with an F button on it, they'll push it, whether it costs them or not and whether it connects them to a great big man-in-the-middle attack on their social lives or not or whether their friends are ratting them out on the weekends to their employers. I think they pay very little attention. It's it's now. But you give a thing to an 8-year-old and it's not like that anymore. He's got plenty of time. You give a 12-year-old a thing like that and she's ready to take it apart. She's not thinking about convenience, she's thinking about learning. She's doing science. She's playing around. And I have seen in more places in the world than I can think to name that force of those children fooling around with computers and doing amazing things. You see it everywhere you go. So I believe the tension is there. I believe usability is a crucial problem in building tools for privacy and freedom. Freedom Freedombox, the stack of software we need to make for all those little objects in the world, you know this even better than I do, it's partly about function, but it's mostly about integration and usability. We've done all the hard work, my laptop, your laptop, we're pretty safe. The problem is how do we make this work for real people with real busy daily lives? So the tension's there, but the answer's there too. We need to empower children. And part of what is wrong with the technology is the extent to which they are becoming not inventors but consumers. If that process is completed, we really are sunk. And this and this is the part of the thing that I was really trying to talk about in the big broad general way, right? We need mesh. We need a way of doing communication which is not based around operator-centric architecture. Is the FCC going to do that for us? No. You want me to engage my critics? They were bought decades ago, right? So now we're in a situation in which if there is one man in this room, Dwayne Hendricks, there is one man in this room who might help us to figure out what we're going to do about this. We must have build-it-yourself networking that really works. Nick was a visionary and he tried. And if it had been ready then, we would be living in a different world now. But it wasn't. I think that's technical failure of an honorable and important kind. I think he conducted a vast innovative experiment and succeeded beyond his wildest dreams, but the other guys ran away with the profits as usual. And the one piece we really, really needed, which was communications technology that deprives the centralized network operator of power, we weren't ready for. Now we have more closed network than open network, more people using proprietary closed forms of somewhat like the Internet than the Internet itself, and we've lost big in that process. Now it's a harder thing to deal with.
3: I often wonder if the amount of energy being put into prevention of file sharing out of all proportion to the economic value of any copyright infringement that's going on is a sign that those in power understand that they must stop our ability to be our own nose. Is that resonant with you? Thank you. you talk about yeah. So there, there are two things in play here. There's logical peer-to-peer, overlay networks, and there's what, what we call material peer-to-peer, physical material networks. And, and there's a complex interplay between those, those forces. So the Freedom Box stands to be a tool that participates in that logical network, no matter what its connection to internet is, and can serve as a seed of a material physical network now your question was, how, how close are we, what needs to be done? As Evan said, the basic tools are, are, are there. We, we know how to build overlay networks. There's, there's been incredible advances over the last decade in distributed computational systems. Uh, so, so that's there. It, it really, at this point, is a matter of integrating those tools in a way that makes them usable and, and as developers that 's something that we 're not always great at, but uh, it 's certainly tractable and and we 're at the point where the, the, these pieces just need to be fit together the The hardware uh, is is in production uh, and and the software is uh, in not quite alpha stage, I guess you would say, but there, there are building blocks there
1: the the world 's going to fill up over the next six or seven years with small, very inexpensive, very powerful servers, which are based around ARM chips and fit in a thing that fits in your hand and uses small amounts of power that you could really run off a battery array. The Freedom Box project, which we started talking about in uh, early 2010 and got serious about in early 2011, is basically a pro privacy router stack based on Debian that fits in servers like that. James Vazil of the Open Internet Tools Project, who used to work for me at the Software Freedom Law Center and who just left the room, has one with him this morning, uh, he told me. Uh, Isaac and hundreds of other really good people around the world, including Jacob Applebaum of Tor, are working on Freedom Box. The Tor project will be developing on Freedom Box stack in future. Um, Our goal is to put a small, cheap – Object that replaces your wireless router in as many places, homes and businesses and safe deposit boxes in the world as we can get. Running software which makes secure peer-to-peer connections between people whose identities have been assured in a civil society web of trust-like way and which can provide a soft migration away from centralized social networking tools like uh, Facebook and Flickr and so on towards systems which actually share only with the people you really mean to share with and which resist the effort of other people to see what's going on. Some of that work is work we all use all the time based around tunneling VPNs and other simple stuff. Some of it is the onion routing infrastructure we are building. some of it is Uh, efforts to increase our meshability by spreading a lot of stuff which is both base station and client around the world. Some of it is efforts to take advantage of skunkworks projects now inside the large IT vendors who also know that small arm-based servers are going to replace the heavy iron they've been selling. But the real net of it, the bottom seed of it is control your own server, keep your own logs, do it in a way which resists tampering from external parties who aren't working in your interest, create some robots who really do have the first law of robotics inside them and put them at the portals between private networks and the open public net. If we do that, we begin as Isaac says to interleave the virtual peer to peerage of the net with some actual hundreds of thousands, then millions, then tens tens of millions, ultimately billions of peers that run in the interests of the people who own them.
4: Uh, Hi, Evan. My name is Preston Ray. I'm with the Open Technology Institute. You mentioned towards the end of your speech about how the community of people in this room and the people, the community that we are a part of, uh, has the knowledge, understands the technology, grasps, appreciates, and evangelizes the philosophy that you're talking about to make free collaborative education available to all to solve our world's problems of economic stagnation, innovation stagnation, and austerity. Um, you know, we should recognize that we're also very much a community of privilege in many ways, not only of our grasp of knowledge and not only of our grasp of, you know, the the tools and everything that make these things work, but also the backgrounds we come from. We're able to afford this conference um, many other privileges that I won't go into Uh, what do you feel our responsibility, our role is in bringing about the world you're talking about in in that if we are indeed only 8.3% of the world, we can't assume to represent the entire world but what is our role in that entire... Um...
1: I doubt we're 8.3% of the world. We, it surprises me we're 8.3% of Schleswig-Holstein. But <laughs> but, let me, but let me say a little bit about that. I, I've been engaged for several years now with um, a, a, a community computing center located in a slum in Bangalore. The original center was located in a cluster of people who have been living uh, in that spot, first as untouchable people and now as merely poor people people for a very long time, uh, 2,200 people with one toilet, um, where some young communists working for the big IT firms in Bangalore fished computers out of the garbage and put free software open and opened a computing center in that slum. Uh, And what came out was not so much people who wanted to learn how to use an office suite and get an office job. It turned out they were painters using the gimp to paint pictures one pixel at a time and they were singers and they were writers. Uh, They were people whose communities had never had so much as the possibility of dreaming of any of those things, Uh, but that didn't matter to the kids because they were kids, they just did whatever it was and it has changed many people's lives. My financial support for that activity has been rather minor because they won't take more money than they can use in order to avoid corruption. Um, And my moral support has been, um, I would say, grossly inadequate. Uh, but nonetheless, working together uh, we 've achieved some quite interesting things which have changed dozens of lives and which have produced some teachers who mean to go out and change a bunch of lives more uh, I, I try work to work really quite heavily in my classroom to remind American law students who are genuinely sagging at the knees a little bit with all their debt to think of themselves as privileged in the way you say, and it's important to do. But, but even more important maybe than recognizing our difference uh, from the other people in the world who have so much less is recognizing our similarity. Um, When given the opportunity, those Einsteins in the street are just like our Einsteins. They're better than us smarter, stronger, more capable of ferreting out the mysteries of the universe. Um, We really need to begin at the stage of life where we're pretty equal, that is when we are children, and we really need to make it possible for those children to experiment and learn and grow regardless of their state of economic deprivation. The beauty of the zero marginal cost revolution in human affairs is we can put all knowledge, all culture, all music, all art, all everything that matters to the development of the human mind everywhere, all the time. In the Sudarshan layout in Bangalore, 2,200 people, 1 toilet, 1,700 children and 914 mobile phones. Every one of those mobile phones, which is carried by the poorest of the poor in many societies and which will be carried by everybody in the human race by 2050, every one of those devices can have every book and every play and every piece of music, every equation, every experiment on it, and every brain will grow. Try that, and we can worry less about deprivation and more about progress.
3: The will of... The will of humanity towards total connectedness is is manifest at this point. And I, I said it before and I'll say it again. The fundamental dialectic of our struggle is this. Will we be enslaved by our technology or liberated by it? As technologists, as those privileged enough to understand what what exists now and what is coming, I view our responsibility as making sure that it's liberation technology instead of enslavement technology. And and I think everybody in this room uh, understands that. But uh, the privilege does come with responsibility, and and it's it's to sound
1: that alarm. The important thing about innovation, and we say it when we're in places which have the grandeur of MIT to say it in, is it's a long-run business, not a short-run business. Proprietary software development, whether for the Windows ecosystem or the iOS ecosystem is a game of base hits, not home runs. You can put a neat app on a thing and it's neat and we really love it and why don't you share it with us so we can do better. Oh, well, the SDK terms this and the App Store terms that and no sharing allowed because Steve Jobs slept here once and nobody else can sleep in any bed he ever slept in unless they have his permission and all that stuff. It's okay. It's B-plus innovation. But we can do better. And the point of being experts or inspirers of innovation is to help those bright young people do stuff that lasts for the long term. And you can explain in that frame why the political economy of closed-end innovation isn't really where you want to put your good idea when you're 17. If Jimmy Wales had gone to work for Encyclopedia Britannica or Compton, I'm sure they'd still be paying him a decent salary. And that's become what innovation is supposed to be. It gets you a job. That's when we're really in trouble. Thomas Edison didn't want a job fair enough i 'm not going to speak in favor of Mr. Edison as an individual i'm going to speak i 'm only going to speak in favor of the idea that innovation is for the long run and that 's what counts and If you go to a guy who sells you your life back in return for your idea that 's not long run
2: actually i 'd like to uh, uh, toward joe 's point at a prior point. Um, I was remembering when Evan was talking about. Um, uh, kids, you know what I did when I was a kid was I loved radio, and I loved to stab radios with screwdrivers, and I was a ham radio operator. You know, I, there was no computing in 1961 that a kid could do, but I I hacked on on radios, and I just want to call um, uh, Dwayne Hendricks to the mic for a second to talk about what we were talking about in the hall um, about opportunities with amateur radio that still exist. <laughs>
5: Thanks. Uh, amateur radio has been around for 100 years now. And by treaty, um, it's in most countries on the planet. I can take my amateur radio privileges from the United States and go to all those countries and operate just like I was here. Evan talked about we need to have free access to Spectrum with no middleman. Okay? The amateur radio service is just that. Okay? There's no FCC in the middle. You can create wireless devices. You self-certify them, okay? And as I said, you can take them to other places on the planet and operate them without asking anybody. In fact, with the license class I have, I can put a communications platform in orbit without asking permission of the FCC. That is powerful. So there's a lot of mis apprehensions or misunderstanding about what amateur radio is about perpetrated by organizations like the American Radio Relay League. It's all about innovation under your own control. You can It gives you complete access to spectrum as long as you don't use it for commercial purposes. So let me just leave you with one thought. Ten years ago, I was working for a company called Com21, the founder of which was Paul Barron, who's sort of known as the grandfather of the Internet. right? Paul basically said, look, what I've learned is that I look at all these people around building proprietary radios, okay, and they come and go. If you're going to create a business, look at mass-produced radios and use those and morph them to your own needs. There's two mass-produced radios today, Wi-Fi and cable modems." With a little construct called a transverter, a transverter also known as a linear translator, you can take the inputs and outputs of a cable modem or any Wi-Fi device and put it anywhere in the radio spectrum. And couple that with an amateur radio license, and now you have cheap hardware that can go anywhere and not ask permission of anybody. Okay? So look into this. I mean, amateur radio basically... I put out devices that you don't have to have an amateur radio license to use it. I mean, I can under my amateur radio authority, I can have as many transmitters operating in U.S. territory without – and I have people just like you use them. All I have to be able to do is to turn on or off the device, okay? When I was working at COM21, we littered the Bay Area with cable modems that had transverters and had a wireless Internet network, okay, um, that – we had a lot of people using, okay, so we didn't get any money for it. We didn't charge anybody for internet access, but we provided innovation
1: of a different nature. That's it. Go
2: awesome, it. thanks. Thanks, Dwayne.
1: My part of this work, oddly enough, is just making lawyers, right? I mean... That's what I actually do for a living. And, I, and before we get all grand about it, what that really means is teaching young people who have enormous opportunities to change society that they shouldn't go and take jobs pushing corporate finance paper instead. Um, I'm not actually trying Mike's earnest uh, suggestions. Uh, to the contrary, notwithstanding, I'm not trying to wield any power. Uh, I do want to talk to people, and I admit to the bad habit of wanting to talk to people in large groups for long periods of time, which is actually not terribly productive. But but what I think we're trying to do, and here your question about Mohandas Gandhi seems relevant to me, I'm trying to get people to believe that they're the solution I'm trying to get people to believe that it's in their hands, not in the hands of some mysterious power far away. We're going to win this close up, and you must have an Agincourt motif, then that's the one to have. This is not going to be dealt with at a distance. This is done in those actual muddy, slipping and falling places where all this goes on. If Harold thinks we can do it at the FCC, that's great. I'm not sure I believe him, but he can, if I can. What I'm really asking is for all of us to recognize we're going to have to talk the language of political economy and government policy for a while. We've talked the language of licensing and how to make free software, and that's run out. So now the time has come to talk about how we save society's itches by scratching them with freedom. And if we can do that, then we win. Thanks, everybody.
3: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives
4: one thought at a time.
0: Just like a lecture by Terence McKenna, as I listened to Evan Moglin with you just now, uh, well, there were times when something that he said got me to thinking about how I could interact with that idea and while I was thinking about that, I missed several other points he made. So I encourage you to do three things. One, listen to this talk one more time. Two, encourage at least one of your friends to listen to it also. And three, then get together with that friend and discuss the topic of Internet freedom and see if you can discover a way for you to add your mind to the mix and uh, help us all keep from becoming a race of Borg. And uh, if you get into some good discussions about this important topic, I'd be happy to Skype in and join your conversation. Uh, Also, in the uh, program notes for today's podcast, I'll include links to the Freedom Box Project and uh, other relevant information about this important topic. Uh, And as you know, you can get to those notes via psychedelicsalon.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.